John 14, and chapter, uh, chapter 14 and verse 16. Uh, this first question, in a sense, who is the Holy Spirit? If um, the Holy Spirit is a third person of the Trinity, we can get confused sometimes, can't we? we perhaps the title, the Holy Spirit, and so we tend to, uh, sometimes you can hear people refer to the Holy Spirit as it. You know, what's it all about? What does it do? But um, if, if you see the, the Spirit as a kind of title, it's a little bit like the Queen or the Prime Minister. Uh, and yet we immediately associate a person with that title. And so we talk about she, the Queen, or he, the Prime Minister. And so in much the same way, um, the, uh, the Spirit of God... Let me read from verse 15, the bottom of page 1022. If we're not quite sure who the the Spirit is, then the best person to ask is is Jesus. So here is Jesus speaking. He's assuring his disciples who are troubled. You see the top of chapter 14, verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. Um, They're worried because he's been disclosing to them the fact that he won't be with them in bodily form for much longer. And they're beginning to wonder, well, how on earth is this kingdom of God going to be ushered in by the Messiah if the Messiah is going to go, if the Christ is leaving us? So he says, if you love me, verse 15, keep my commands and I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I'll ask the Father, Jesus says, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I'll not leave you as orphans. And already you're beginning to make some connections, aren't you, with this uh, idea of the doctrine of adoption. Jesus is not going to leave us as orphans, but adopted uh, into God's family as sons. That word there, another, in verse 16, I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate. And the Greek word that's translated advocate in this translation is the word parakletos. And it literally means one of the same kind. One of exactly the same kind. And that's interesting, isn't it? Because we've already seen how Jesus, the only begotten son, Jesus is exactly of the same kind. There was a big debate on this. Exactly the same kind of God as God. And now here's Jesus saying, I'll send exactly the same kind as me. So here you see Trinity clearly marked out when we we dig around. The spirit of truth exactly of the same kind as Jesus. So as we can understand the picture Jesus as a person who will lead us to God, so too the Spirit. And that word, um, uh, another, there, it emphasizes it's, it's exactly the same. So the, the parakletos, one called to be alongside, one of exactly the same kind. And I gather in the Roman army, they, uh, when they weren't marching in a, in a great big, um, uh, what would it be, um, Cohort. What's the word I want? Lots of them together. Legion. 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 That'll do. Legion. Uh, so when they weren't, when they were out, they never went on their own. It was very dangerous to be, uh, you know, out on, on manoeuvres on your own. They always had someone else. You always went in pairs. And the idea was that your partner would be there to cover your back because each individual's line of vision is only so far. Um, you'd have someone who'd be covering where your blind spots were. And that partner, you were to each other. A parakeet. 
And the paraclete who was one called to be alongside you, one exactly the same as you, called to be alongside, who would be your, your advocate, if you like, your defender, uh, one who would be with you. This is the spirit of truth who will be with you forever. That's who the Holy Spirit is. It's how we know the reality of God through Christ in our lives. That's who he is. Um, and many of these, I put these questions away now, but some of the questions here and some of the sort of discussion might lead us to suggest that um, all this talk of the, the, the Holy Spirit is quite a modern phenomenon. I'm just picking up on Steve's question that um, there seems to be a lot of spirit post-Pentecost, but you know, um, in earlier parts of the, in the Old Testament and the, the first part of the Bible, there seems to be relatively little. And it, it just seems to be a sort of modern, fairly modern um, point of discussion within Christian circles. Um, and you know elements of disagreement, but but actually, you know, has there really been the spirit? Or I mean, has he, has he been there um, right from the start? And uh, let's just look at our next reference, right, at the first book of Genesis, to see that the spirit, in a sense, exactly the same kind of being as God the Father and God the Son, was there right at creation. We've seen this actually, um, so I won't spend time on it because we saw this in our teaching last term. Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So there is the Spirit of God, and by implication we discern that the Spirit's work was to bring order out of chaos. It's something that's been the testimony, I think, of Christian lives down the ages. That in confused and chaotic lives, an encounter with God by his spirit has brought some kind of order, some kind of meaning. So there he is in chapter 1. Chapter 2, just turn over the page. And we see further his work in creation, right at the beginning, there with the Father and the Son. This is uh, an account of the uh, making of man, chapter 2 and verse 7. Having made the, uh, the garden, the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now this part of the Bible is written in, uh, the original was written in, in Hebrew, and the word for breath there is the Hebrew word ruach. And ruach elsewhere in the, the Old Testament is translated spirit. Uh, very often with the Hebrew, as indeed with the Greek, the precise meaning of the words um, is determined by the context. And so elsewhere, the word ruach is used, but it's used clearly of God and his spirit. And so that's the obvious translation. But here, I guess, because it can also be translated breath, and with this sort of picture that uh, the writer of Genesis paints for us, I guess it makes more sense with the context to translate ruach as, as breath. You've got this idea of a sort of Tony Hart, you know, kind of making this, um, this man out of the dust of the earth, like a sort of, you know, this inanimate sort of human form, and it just sort of stands there, a lump of clay and earth and mud, all kind of stuck and pasted together. And then there's this wonderful intimate picture of, of God. I mean, I don't know how you picture this, but God kind of leaning down to this creation, this, this inanimate form, and leaning down and... Well, almost, I mean, it, we, we have this phrase, the kiss of life. I mean, leaning to breathe his breath or spirit into this inanimate object, such that scripture records, the man became a living being. 
So to answer the question, what is it that makes us alive to God? And the answer, it would seem to me, from creation is when God breathes his breath or his ruach, his spirit, into us. We become living beings, alive, if you like, to God and to his plans and purposes and desires for us. So who is the Holy Spirit? Well, he's there at creation, bringing life to human form. He's uh, uh, one called to be alongside us, the parakletos, another of the same kind as Jesus, and therefore, by inference, as God. Now, I want to track this theme, and hopefully I'm going to pick up some of Steve's um, questions here, uh, to, to trace, I, I think, quite a rich theme, uh, a, a sort of a golden thread through the tapestry of the Bible and the tapestry of the Old Testament in particular, by um, studying this idea of God manifest to human beings by his spirit or his presence. It's true to say that the word spirit does not, or ruach in the Old Testament, doesn't occur nearly as frequently as we might expect given the occurrence in the New Testament of the word pneuma. Um, and we'll come on to that later on. But it's clear that what marks out the people that God has chosen, the people of Israel, is his presence, his, his very self amongst them. We know that um, God, through uh, the Exodus, uh, uh, and it is recorded for us in the book of Exodus, saved his people out of Egypt, out of slavery, through the blood of the sacrificed lamb daubed on the doorposts. And that's what brought them out of slavery. But the question is, how is it that having been rescued from slavery, how were the people to live? What was it that was going to sustain them out of their slavery and in their new free lives? Let's look at uh, Exodus chapter 33, page 88. Here's Moses, complaining to God in a sense, because God has called him to lead these people. It's been tough. They've been wandering around in the desert. They've begun to wish from time to time that they were back in captivity. Look at uh, chapter 33 and verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, You've been telling me, lead these people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. You've said, I know you by name and you've found favour with me. If you're pleased with me, teach me your way so I may know you and continue to find favour with you. Remember that this nation is your people. Kind of covenant promise of God. And the Lord replied, My presence... Denote the capital P. My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And Moses said, because he really understands the importance of having God dwell amongst them, manifest about amongst them. If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? Why, in other words, Moses is saying, why should we enjoy special favour? Why should we know safety and security and freedom? Unless you go with us. You dwell with us. And God gives commands for uh, uh, Moses and the people of Israel to make the, the tabernacle. You see verse 36, just flick over with me. And there are different uh, instructions, detailed, intricate instructions for the people to create the tabernacle. And just over chapter 40 and verse 35, page 96. Having completed 
the tabernacle and the ark and uh, all the different uh, clothing and regulations for the priests. Uh, We see verse 34. The cloud, signifying the presence of God, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The glory of the Lord himself was resident, if you like, in the tabernacle that the people of Israel carried with them. God presence amongst his people. It's, it's, it's a rich theme of scripture all the way through scriptures. I hope this evening we'll see. God's desire is to call a people who will, who will, who will live for his express purposes, who will live to make him look good. And his promise is that he will be amongst them. He will tabernacle with them. His glory would be manifest in and through them. And we see that with the the tabernacle. And later on, let's just look at 1 Kings chapter 8, page 330. Forgive me, I know this is a bit of a paper chase, but I think it's important that we just track this theme through scripture. When the people settled in the promised land and... uh, I'm missing out a bit of history here, but they get themselves kings. His, in Solomon's time, this great temple is built. So the tabernacle, uh, which was movable, if you like, has now become permanent, the temple. And within the inner sanctuary, the Holy of Holies, we read this, verses 10 and 11 of uh, 1 Kings chapter 8. When the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord. And the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. So God, present amongst his people, in the Holy of Holies, God's manifold, manifest presence. Now, I need to make a distinction here, and I think it's quite an important one to make, because there's some confusion maybe that arises out of this. We understand that God, one of the attributes of God is that he's omnipresent. Omni meaning all or everywhere, present, you know, present. So we understand that one of the abilities of God, unlike us, is God is spirit. He's able to be in all places. He's omnipresent. And the people of Israel understood that. But alongside that understanding of the attributes of God was this sense that God was specifically present, if you like, in the tabernacle or in the temple, such that Moses could say, please, Don't tell us to go anywhere unless you come with us. Now, if we only hold to the omnipresence of God, that makes no sense because God is everywhere. And we hold that truth. But Moses understood that he needed to know that God was with them. And so God's glory fills the tabernacle. God's glory fills the temple. And the people of Israel know who they are. That's what marks them out. Uh, Along with the law, the different regulations, the feasts, uh, circumcision and so on. Different rules, rules and regulations that the Lord sets up as part of his covenant to mark out the fact that the people of Israel are chosen, the people of the voice they were known as, different from all the other neighbouring nations. And God has placed them amongst all the other nations so that because his presence is with them, they might be, as he promised through Abraham, a light to the Gentiles, that others would see in a sense, the glory of the Lord amongst them. And that through that, all people would come to know this God. So not the omnipresence of the Lord we're talking about here, but the manifold or specific presence of the Lord. 
Tragedy. Tragedy in the history of Israel. The exile. I haven't got time to spend much time on it, but uh, fill in the gaps if you're not aware in the small groups. Um, but the people chase after idols. The, you know, the Hebrew word for idols literally means nothings. They chase after nothings. Oh, this will be good. Oh. Oh, I'll have that. Oh. And God warns them time and time again. He sends prophets, listen, there will be, there will be judgment. If you, if you make these choices, there will be consequences. And bit by bit, rather like when you make a, a sandcastle on the, with an incoming tide, you know, just stand this proud sandcastle, so was the people of Israel, but the tide comes in. And the Assyrians in the north, and eventually the Babylonians in the south, they erode bits and bits of the kingdom, the sandcastle of Israel, until the whole thing basically is flattened. And uh, the northern territories are lost forever. The southern territories of Judah and Israel carried off into captivity. And uh, this bit of history has been rehearsed in popular culture. It was number one in the charts just a little while ago. In order for you to understand this theology that got to number one, let me just explain two things. One is that in Babylon, where the exiles were carried to, the rivers were thought to be sacred and life-giving and healing. And the other thing is that the nickname for the mount, the, 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 the block of land on which the temple stood in Jerusalem, was called Zion. So sing with me. By the rivers of Babylon, exiles they see, where we sat down. What happened? We sat there, we wet. Why? Because we remembered Zion. Psalm 137, well done. Just uh, put your hand up in the air. Put your hand up in the air. Turn it round and give yourselves a pat on the back. You sound that very well. So carried off. Why are they, why are they weeping by the rivers of Babylon? Because they, they know they are by the sacred places of the Babylonians and they've realized, oh my goodness, we, this is well, pathetic, it's just a river running. We know that we had the one true living God, the glory of God filled the temple. But when the Babylonians came, they sacked the temple, they destroyed the temple. And with the destruction of the temple, we just think it was just a building. No, to the people of Israel, God departed, God left. If you read the, the prophecy of uh, Ezekiel, who was trained to be a priest, and he was carried off, he's one of the exiles carried off, and he has in his great vision, probably easier if you read it in something like the message, and you can read it in one go, and you see that at the start of the, prophet, the book of Ezekiel, he sees the glory of the Lord fill the temple. God is here, we're all okay. And at the I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, at the start of his prophecy, God, God leaves the temple, we're not okay exile and then at the end of his prophecies he, as he looks ahead and sees the return of the exiles and the rebuilding of the temple he sees God enter the temple again God is back with us few now I, I put that maybe slightly tritely this was life to the Israels that God was with them think back to Moses oh God please don't make us go anywhere where you are not come with us be with us so much of the prophetic activity, God raising up these prophets was with the destruction of the temple and therefore God, in a sense, you know, the absence of God amongst his people. Their very identity, exactly how they understood themselves to be, to be, have been demolished and dismissed. Prophetic activity begins to look ahead to the renewed presence of God. And so I'm on, where am I now? Um, number two, what's going to happen Let's look at Jeremiah as one example. Page um, 751. The prophets began to speak about... Uh, Jeremiah basically is 
prophesying towards the end of the time of Israel and when um, Babylon is kind of rising up as a threat. And uh, so he speaks, it's quite a gloomy prophetic book, Jeremiah. Um, he speaks of the coming doom. He speaks of what's going to happen. You're going to lose the presence of God. The temple's going to be destroyed. You're going to be carried away. And yet, there's, there's hope. Let me, in fact, let me just... Yeah, look at, look at, just back a page, at chapter 30. This prophecy of the future renewed presence of God, restored presence of God. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, chapter 30, verse 1. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Write in a book all the words I've spoken to you. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will bring my people Israel and Judah back from captivity and restore them to the land I gave to their ancestors to possess, says the Lord. So, do you see where we are in in the kind of history? It's, it's, It's going to happen. Now look at chapter 31 and verse 31. The days are coming declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with our ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. This is God saying, I will put my law in their hearts and uh, in their minds and write it on their hearts. The law, in other words, that the words of God, that which marks out the people as distinct, initially through the giving of the ten words or ten commandments, written on tablets of stone, and, and emanating from that all sorts of rules and regulations over particular feast days and uh, circumcision is the right that marks out uh, the people of Israel from anyone else. These external rules and regulations, these external elements of the law, are going to be internalized. I won't write them, do you notice, verse 33. I'm not going to write them on tablets of stone again. I'm going to write them in their minds. And I'm going to write them on their hearts. The law, that which marked out the people as unique, It's no longer going to be externally understood and received, but internally. How will that happen? Let's look at the next reference, 822, page 822. Now we're into Ezekiel's prophecy, chapter 36. And again, this is kind of going over um, similar ground to Jeremiah. So that you'll, you'll pick up the sort of promise again. How is God going to internalize this law? And here again we see the promise of the renewed presence of God by his spirit. For I will take you out of the nations, verse 24 of chapter 36. I'll gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I'll cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your nothings. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I give your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. Just as an aside, 
that language there, you will be my people, I will be my God. Did you, did you hear it in Jeremiah? There it is again in Ezekiel. And actually that's, it's established covenant language. It's a bit like a signature tune. Um, um, match of the day has a signature tune. And in the morning, Sunday, it's, it's on late at night, too late for anyone under the age of um, 11 in our household to watch it on a Saturday night. But it's repeated again on a Sunday morning. And how does my son know that Match of the Day is coming on? Because he hears the, the theme tune. As soon as you know, sort of tell he's on, he's, he's maybe making himself a jam sandwich, or he's doing something, and suddenly, oh, quick, 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 quick! You know, off he goes. Got to watch the. Got to. He wants to see the opening credits. He doesn't want to miss a thing. And and so that is is like a sort of it's like covenant language. Come, come into the world of Match of the Day. Sit and absorb. In the same way, I will be your God, you will be my people. To the people of Israel, that was like, oh, God speaking, God speaking. What's happening? What's happening? Ah, More promises for the future. I will be your God, you will be my people. It's like the signature tune that wakes up Israel. God is promising something. It's good news. It's the promise of his renewed presence. This internalizing of the law, I will, what does he say? Verse um, Uh, 26, I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. What does that look like? God had given Israel everything they needed for living. He'd given them the promise of his presence and the law to, to, to help them, if you like, the curb on the road, to keep them from straying off, to keep them on the road so that they were free to drive. And, and Israel had been, if you like, carrying the law, but the law had got heavier and heavier. Imagine if you're going on a walk and you start off, you know, you've had a hearty breakfast, you put the sack on your back and you set off at quite a pace. But after a while, the walk becomes quite wearisome. You begin to grow a little bit tired. And we're going on and on. And, and the sack of provisions, I mean, they're all good things. But they begin to become more and more of a burden. They feel heavier and heavier. They weigh you down. So God, in effect, is saying, okay, let's take off the external weight. And what I want you to do is rather than carrying your packed lunch, eat it. And rather than carrying your heavy flask, Drink it. And uh, if it's got a little bit chilly now, or it's maybe beginning to, then put on the clothing and all the extra bits and pieces. Where you're feeling a bit chilly because you've gained height on your mountain. Put on your fleece. Put on all the kit. So that you have, if you like, a double virtuous whammy. The weight and the burden has gone and you're using it to live. You're fueled by the food. You're fueled by the drink and rehydrated. And you're warmed by the clothing. No longer carrying the weight externally. It's part of you. And that's the picture of what God is promising to do by his spirit. I'll remove your heart of stone, this dead weight that you're carrying around. And put a heart of flesh in you. I'll put my spirit in you and move you, inspire you. To follow my decrees. Some people have asked, why did... Why do you call this course Inside Out? And maybe it was this verse that I had in mind when I was thinking about it. That when God calls us to live as his people, he wants us to be inspired from the inside out. And that is the work 
of his promised spirit, the presence of God amongst his people. Uh, let me just, because uh, I see the time is racing on. Um, Joel 2 is just a promise. We can look at that later on. It's, it's only to say that this promise of the renewed presence of God by his spirit was for all people. For the young and the old, for the rich and the poor. In fact, it's interesting, in a highly patriarchal and uh, uh, sort of male-dominated society, that the women, on your sons and daughters, uh, that women are mentioned as well as being recipients of this promise of the Spirit. It's on all people that God will, and the word is pour, pour out. We, uh, we British, I was talking to someone the other day about um, you know, what it is to be British, and one of the character traits, so forgive me if you're not British, you're, you're freed from this, but one of the character traits is we queue, don't we? We love to queue, we'll form a queue of one. You just wait, Ooh. and we're very polite as well with it. Oh no, after you, you know, I'll just... And particularly if there's something sort of, we're not quite sure, of being sort of dished out at the front. So I don't know whether it was, perhaps it was a carryover from school. You know, oh, pick me, pick me. Oh, I never get picked. Or, you know, sir's giving out sweets. Oh, you, you, oh maybe not. You know, and I sort of, oh, right, I'll just hang at the back. And we get this sort of slight sort of hangdog. There's a glass half empty. And here is this promise from God. I will pour out my spirit on all people. And we kind, of, we, we kind of cipher that, don't we, in our understanding. Oh, well, yeah, I know what that means. That means a vicar. But I bet the vicar will get the spirit. Yeah, <laughs> and the PCC. Actually, I don't know about that. No, no, no. That's, that's, no, that's just a joke. Joke, joke, joke. Uh, but, you know, all the important people. All the important people first. They'll get it. Won't, it won't, that doesn't apply to me. But the promise is on all people, whatever background, whatever race, who come to know God through Christ, as we come to see in a minute. Jesus, number three, restores the presence of God. Let's just look at one of those references. Um, page 972, Luke, chapter 3. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise of the renewed presence of God. And it's interesting to see how the gospel writers, particularly, I mean, Matthew, just to tell you what those references are, you shall call Jesus Emmanuel, God with us. John, chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and lived amongst us. The presence of God back amongst his people again. And um, specifically though, Luke links Jesus' life and Jesus' ministry with the coming of the Holy Spirit. Again, the bottom of page 972, chapter 16, or 15, let's go from. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. But John answered them all, I baptise you with water. But one who is more powerful than I will come. The thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. I baptise with water. As in a sense of foreshadowing, a preparation for what is yet to come. John the Baptist is like the police escort on the motorway, driving slowly. You're not meant to look at him, the police escort. You're meant to be aware of something far greater coming behind. And John says, there's someone far greater than me coming behind. And he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit. I want to come back to that phrase, baptism in the Holy Spirit, and unpack what that means in a later session. But suffice it to say just for now, that baptism um, really means, literally means in sort of contemporary usage, baptizo was to overwhelm or to immerse completely. Ships, when they had sunk, uh, were said to be baptizoed, overwhelmed by water. And, and their whole being was transformed as a result. They went from being a ship to a wreck. <laughs> you, you notice that something different had happened. 
And Jesus is the one who will overwhelm us, flood us with the Holy Spirit so that in so being we may become the people of God, God's chosen people marked out by the fact that God is present. They are overwhelmed by his presence, that of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus, um, the gift of the Spirit, the promise of the Spirit, as God's presence amongst his people, Jesus is the one who fulfills that promise. Uh, we're familiar, let's just look at it though, with how the church came into being. Acts chapter 2, I'm going to race through these last three things, so I'm coming into land. But um, page 1032. Oh, actually, sorry, no, um, I'm going to, no, no, sorry, sorry, sorry. John chapter 7, I don't want to miss that one. Back again, so sorry. Page 1013. I'll skip Acts 2. Um, you can look at it in the groups. But this is just quite significant, I think, in that Jesus clearly understood that he was the one to usher in this new era of the Spirit of God present amongst his people. Um, they're at the Feast of Tabernacles. You see from the um, chapter 7. Uh, um, and Jesus, at the start of chapter 7, didn't go initially to the, uh, to the feast. Um, the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles, verse 2, was near. Jesus and his brothers said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea, so that your disciples there may see the works you do. And eventually Jesus went, um, about halfway through. Now, just a little background on the Feast of Tabernacles. Um, uh, it, it was all the Feast of Booths, as it was known, and the, uh, uh, all, all the Jews used to gather on Jerusalem. It was, the feast then was sort of a week, ten days. But what they do to remind themselves, they were reliving their history, they didn't have books and things like that nearly so much. They rehearsed the history. They told the history through stories. They understood who they were through the rehearsing of their history. And what they would do to act it out was to erect little, little sort of temporary booths or tents, if you like, to remind themselves of the time when they were wandering in the desert. They didn't have a homeland. And specifically, what they remembered was God's provision through that. So they celebrated the fact that God had rescued them in the past. And particularly within that, they'd remember the time when they were uh, roaming around in the desert, grumbling and complaining at Moses. And Moses is at his wit's end. And uh, eventually the Lord says, well, take your staff and strike that rock. And as he did that, water gushed from the rock. Are you familiar with that story? Um, And they remember that when they were about to, to die of thirst, God provided for them. And they also looked ahead to the time when, as portrayed in Ezekiel's prophecy, chapter 47, when streams of water would flow from the temple. So God had provided water when they were thirsty, and they were looking ahead to the time when God's streams would go into rivers and into a great rushing torrent. And uh, they enacted this uh, to remind themselves of the promise of God. And what the priests used to do was to get huge um, pitchers of water and pour it all over the altar in the temple. And the temple was designed, because of all the sacrifices that carried out, all the blood and stuff that on you know, a fairly regular basis poured forth, the temple was designed with sort of drains or runnels that, that went out from the altar to the, um, out into the exits and on a slight sort of incline. So that it was quite easy to wash away all the sort of blood and entrails. And the priest used to pour the water over the altar and it would run over the altar and down these runnels. And as you'd see the streams running, you'd remember the prophecy of Ezekiel and you'd remember the provision of God when they were really thirsty. God provided them water to drink. Now with that picture in mind of what's taking place at the Feast of Tabernacles, let's read verse 37 
On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And then John adds by way of editorial comment, By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. So Jesus stands up in the middle of the Jewish temple and says that which you continually reenact year on year and you're looking forward to is sort of here. It's, it's happening. If you want to drink and forever be satisfied, come to me. And streams of living water will flow, not from the temple, but from you. As you become, he didn't say this, but as we now understand, you become the new temple of God. Streams of living water will flow from you. And John has kind of written that, got a little bit carried away with himself, so he needs to write and explain, by this he meant the Spirit, who was going to come on all the people. We are familiar, I'm, I'm guessing, forgive me if you're not, but that's what happened on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. And we see that the church was birthed. 3,000 were added to their number, that's the second reference there. Let's look at one reference to um, uh, this fact, that the church becomes the new temple of God. Page 1109. And we're in Ephesians. As the Spirit comes through the ministry of Jesus, is released on the day of Pentecost, so that those who believe in Jesus are, are saved through the blood of the Lamb, are empowered and equipped to live by His Spirit. And uh, all those who are called by God through Christ and filled with his spirit become, if you like, the new temple or the new tabernacle where God's presence was secured in the Holy of Holies before. Now God's presence is secured in the heart and mind, just as Jeremiah and Ezekiel prophesied. This new heart, this spirit of God within the people. And so Paul... It's very interesting, Paul doesn't use metaphors to describe the Holy Spirit. The Gospel writers and Jesus himself talks about the Spirit as as dove or as water or as fire. We've, We've just picked up two or three of those references already. But Paul doesn't use any metaphors to describe the Spirit. It's presuppositional to him that the church is full of the Spirit. He doesn't need to describe it. It's it's obvious. It's a bit like me sort of describing, you know, what does hair look like when it's growing on a head? I don't need to, I mean, it's obvious, isn't it? So we can go on to sort of how we might groom our hair or look after our hair or wish it would come back in one or two cases. But um, we don't need to actually describe what it looks like. And in the same way, Paul didn't need to describe or use metaphors to conjure up what the Spirit looked like. It was apparent in the church. So what he does is uses metaphors to describe what people who are full of the Spirit look like. And he realizes what God has done. And what he did in the past, in being manifest amongst the people in the temple, he's now doing in the church. And so he writes, verse 19, chapter 2, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives 
by his spirit. Those other references, uh, similar ones, Peter there and Paul to the Corinthians, uh, about the church being like the new temple by which he means. We are the, the place, if you like, where God lives by his spirit, fulfilling the Old Testament prophecy. And finally, let's just look at this final verse and then we'll split down into our groups. It's just to see that as we begun with the Spirit as the presence of God. So we see the consummation of that. In this picture of the new heaven and the new earth that John has. And uh, let me just read verse 3 as he sees the new heaven and the new earth come down. And I heard, verse 3, a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Covenant language for the presence of God. Do you notice there's no need for a temple now? There's no need for any mediation. It's just God with his people, as he'd always wanted, wished desired and created for it to be. So the Holy Spirit, one rich theme through scripture, the presence of God. We saw it in the Old Testament with uh, Israel. We see that hope dashed through the exile. We see the renewed promise of his presence fulfilled in Jesus and made manifest in the church. That's what we are. We are the new temple where God lives by his spirit. Well done, thank you. I realise there's been quite a lot of ground to cover there and we won't look to cover quite as much ground in the, in the coming weeks. There'll be more time for, uh, for sort of feedback and discussion and so on. What I'd love to suggest now, I don't know whether if there's some tea and coffee or, or some nibbles at least that we can grab by way of sustenance on the way. And I'd love to suggest that we um, split down into, into breakout groups And I I think what I suggest is if we go with um, those of us that are in house groups, now please forgive me if you're you're not, but if we start by identifying those who meet in midweek house groups, and then really I think the best thing I can suggest is if you're not in the habit of meeting with a house group, why don't you go to the one that looks to you like the nicest and the friendliest and just ask if you can sort of join in with them. Um, and I'm sure they'll accommodate you and just uh, we'd love you to be a part of that, that group. The idea is for the next half hour or so, let's, uh, let's finish at 9.30, is that we um, just ask any questions we may have, things we want to say uh, by way of, uh, of response to what we've just looked at and heard. Um, and we'll do that in our, our smaller groups. If the group is too big, no, no hassle in, in uh, splitting into two. There are some suggestions on the back of the sheet for, for, for discussions that you may have. Why don't we have, uh, so what have we got here? Why don't, well, why don't uh, so Thomas, Justin, Sophie, y- your group there, then um, we could go, what about uh, the vicarage group? If we take a little bit further back there and just, just turn around in the pews and sort of form a kind of group. We've got the kind of Wednesday nights we've got here. And we've got another Wednesday night. There we are. So we've got Trevor and Sarah there. Give yourselves a bit of space if that helps. Um, we've got Alan's here. We've got Justin and Sophie's here. We've got um, the vicarage there. If you're not part of a group, we'd love you to join in with this activity. Just come and join with, as I say, whichever group takes your fancy.